What a great message in song, especially this week, right? The goodness of God and all the blessings that we have, we should be conscious of and expressing those to the Lord. And I know in your mind you're thinking it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving and we just heard a song about all of the blessings we have received. He's going to preach happy about being thankful and we'll go home with full hearts. Wrong. This is a message about fish puke, fish vomit. You say, there's no way this is a message about fish vomit. Join me in the book of Jonah. I assure you we're going to talk about a vomiting fish in this book. We began a study last week, and I intend to carry it on for a few weeks as we enter the most wonderful time of the year, the holidays, or at least that's what we have been told. That's how we have been conditioned to view this season of life. Inherent in that conditioning is everything should be perfect. Everything should be postcard worthy. Everything should be in order. The reality for all of us is it rarely measures up like that. We've been stretched. We've been compressed. We've been bent. Life has thrown some things at us and we've experienced hardship. And when we enter into this season, oftentimes we feel like We're behind everybody else. We feel like failures. Perhaps we're even forced to, in these moments, realize that throughout our lives and over the passage of time, we have missed opportunity. And in this study, we have been focusing on the reality that the Bible gives us answers for every situation in life and teaches us how to bounce back even from missed opportunities. Isn't that an interesting word, opportunity? If you do a little etymology, you'll find in the Latin it was ob portu. And back in the days before modern harbors, a ship would have to wait for the flood tide before it could make it into the port. And so you would have standing off port ships, and as the tide would come in, they would ride it in to the port and they could offload their goods. The English word opportunity comes from That awareness, that understanding, a captain and a crew ready and waiting for the moment that the tide comes in to offload, to do the task they have been assigned, living with the awareness that if they missed that tide, they would have to wait and languish until another tide or opportunity came. Shakespeare took that thought, and I know you read so much Shakespeare that this is old hat to you. How many of you read any Shakespeare? Any one person in the entire room in both services, one smart person who we must rely on to run things. Shakespeare wrote this in Julius Caesar There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. For every one of us, it is such that in our lives, we have failed to seize opportunities. That can be for a myriad of reasons. This morning, as we enter into the book of Jonah, we are going to find that Jonah's stubborn rebellion against the direct mandate of God forced him to miss an opportunity. How do we bounce back When we have been disobedient to God in Jonah, I'll begin reading in chapter one and verse one. If you don't have your Bibles, the verses will be here on the screen so that you can know this is God's word. Now, 
The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah has been given an assignment by God, and we just witnessed him in stubborn rebellion against the direct mandate of God, run the other direction. But as I study this, I am struck by the first word of the book of Jonah. It is now. One author said of this, if I started my book with the word now, my editor would probably wonder if something had been lost. Because now indicates that there is something that has unfolded prior to this moment. I think it is for us to live with the awareness that God's story of grace and mercy is unfolding, and certainly it is. Even for a city like Nineveh, which is as anti-God as can possibly be. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Any time in Scripture that we read the word of the Lord came unto somebody, it is indicative of the fact that this is an authentic prophet. God is speaking, God is handing out a mandate, and the individual that is receiving the mandate is authentic. It also communicates to us that something is about to unfold. Something is about to be kicked off into action. Something is about to get underway. And what we'll find here immediately is the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, telling him to go to Nineveh and cry against it. And we read in verse 3, but... Jonah rose up to flee. Now, if the word now indicates to us that there's a story unfolding, we see in the contradictory word at the beginning of verse 3, but that Jonah is taking direct action against what God has just told him to do. Why would Jonah run the other way when God was so clear to tell him what to do? Because if we're honest, being a prophet of God was a really hard task. Obedience to that call oftentimes was equal to receiving a death sentence. A little study in the Old Testament will show us that Elijah, as a prophet of God, had a contract put out on his head. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was beaten and imprisoned several times. He was thrown into a well where he sinks in mud up to his waist and he was left there to die. Daniel, prophet of God, thrown in the lion's den. Nehemiah, simply doing in accordance with the will of God, based on the burden of his heart, goes back to Jerusalem, and his life is threatened. The reality is, it was really difficult, and it was costly to obey the will of God as a prophet of God, and certainly it was the same for Jonah. We're all familiar that when God says, who will go, and who will I send, Isaiah responds in effect with, I'll go, send me. When Jonah has God ask him, who will go and who should I send, Jonah says, anybody but me, find somebody else. This is contradictory action against the word of God. Why would you not want to go to Nineveh? Nineveh was a wicked city. Nineveh was very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. They had been singled out for 
their wickedness. In fact, you'll note a phrase in the end of verse 2 where the Bible says, for their wickedness is come up before me. That's the language from God in his assignment to Jonah. The wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. And the vivid imagery painted by that language is clear. Their wickedness, their perversion, their vile behavior is like stinking sewage. And it smells so bad and the smell is so potent that it has reached my nostrils up here. And I turn away, I smell the wickedness of Nineveh. And Nineveh was a terribly wicked place. I have no doubt in my mind when the word of the Lord arrived for Jonah, he was gripped with different emotions. But when he heard that his assignment required him to go to Nineveh, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. In study, I found many adjectives that described the inhabitants of Nineveh, the Ninevites. Here are some adjectives associated with them. Demon worshiping, never good. Immoral, brutal, unmerciful. Perverted people. So perverted in their cruelty, they boasted of it. And their reputation had gone throughout the earth. When you heard of Nineveh, you immediately were struck with fear. Nahum, another minor prophet in the Old Testament, prophesied against the city of Nineveh, against the inhabitants of Nineveh. And when we read his account, we learn a little more about it. In Nahum chapter 3, here's what he writes. Woe to the bloody city. Now we know that Philly is what? The city of brotherly love. And Chicago is the windy city. And Washington, D.C. is... I'm kidding. I don't want anyone to opine about politics. But Nineveh was the bloody city. Now why? It's all full of lies and robbery. The prey that enters in never gets out. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear And there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. And there is none end of their corpses. Corpses. Now listen to that next phrase. They stumble upon their corpses. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now anytime you read a city and the adjectives are demon-worshipping, immoral. Anytime you read a segment of verses and it's called the bloody city and you read happy words like the mistress of witchcraft and whoredoms. Anytime you get in there and you realize you can't even step without stepping on the corpses and somehow prancing horses makes it in there. Jumping chariots. This is all vivid imagery that is communicating to people like you and I. If ever there was a place you did not want to go visit as an outsider, it was Nineveh. And if ever there was an assignment that would hit you straight in the face as being impossible to fulfill, it would be if God came directly to you and said, I have a job for you. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to cry against it, all by yourself. One lone prophet, go to Nineveh and preach about all their cruelty and all of their wickedness. And Jonah says, nope, I'm out. And he runs the opposite direction. Whenever you study the Bible, are there not words that you encounter that are kind of hard to say? 
You read it, it's just hard to get it out. Tarshish is one of those words. Tarshish. Three times in verse 3, you must read Tarshish. Tarshish, Tarshish. Why? Because there is an emphasis on where Jonah is running. Jonah is running, according to geography, the exact opposite direction of where Nineveh was. Tarshish was the westernmost port in the known world. And three times over, we are told Jonah ran to Tarshish. I mean, far away from what God wanted. To Tarshish, the opposite direction from Nineveh. To Tarshish, the westernmost port in the world. Even in the language in verse 3, we're told when he gets down to Joppa and he buys the ticket and he pays the fare to get on the boat, he goes down into the boat. Everything that is being communicated to us in the language of Scripture is he is hiding from God. He is working against God. In the unfolding story of God's grace and mercy, Jonah has taken contradictory steps against the will of God. And then we arrive at verse 4. And we read this. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Jonah is about to learn a very important lesson. Obedience to God is always best. And even when you think or imagine that you are in control, you are woefully errant in your thinking. One author said this, I am not the master of my destiny. Not even my daily life, God is. To obey means to yield my will for his will. My desire for his desire. To engage in activity that is different or unpleasant or strange or dangerous or difficult or simply a drudgery. I relinquish control, and in others' words, call the shots. I am no longer my own master. That's what following the Lord Jesus Christ should look like. In the New Testament, we use the Greek word doulos. It communicates bondservant. We call the Lord Jesus our Lord and Master, indicating that we live with the awareness that we are slaves, that we are servants, and we do the bidding of our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But because of our old nature, we often behave in a contradictory fashion against the mandates of God. That's exactly what Jonah did. And when we read in verse 4, but the Lord sent a great wind, it's communicating to us that God has now taken contradictory action against Jonah. There's a little bit of a back and forth that is going on. Hint, you might know who ultimately wins those struggles every time. The Hebrew text here is very descriptive. When it says the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, what is literally being communicated is God picked up a wind and he threw it down on the sea. And by the way, creator God can do that. We'll read on in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Now, I believe these are veteran sailors. This is not their first time on the sea. They are undertaking this journey. They are on their way to Tarshish. And this wind is such that they, based on their experience and based on what they can see, hear, and feel, they realize this ship is doomed. 
I think it was creaking, it was groaning, it was cracking. The waves were coming up. The the wind and the sea were raging to such a degree that pagan heathen people begin to cry out to their gods. There is a very quick prayer meeting called on board that vessel and they are crying out to gods who are deaf and who are dumb and who have no power nor ability to intercede or to do anything for this storm. But Jonah is what? He's down in the ship and he is asleep. Does it stand out to you that the first reaction of pagan people was to pray to their gods and the one true follower of God is down in the ship asleep and not praying at all? I think it is possible for us to be so distanced from God in our waywardness in our stubborn rebellion against him, that our first reaction to hardship isn't even spiritual. I imagine Jonah's at the point where he thinks, why would I pray? God's not going to hear me. Why would I pray? It's going to be indicated to us in a moment. He knows why this storm is here. But the pagans are praying to their God. In verse 6, we read this. So the shipmaster, here comes the captain of the ship, came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. God is ahead of us, God is behind us, God is above us, God is beneath us, God is before us. Wherever we run, God is already there. That's what we're learning. The master of the ship comes down to Jonah and he says to Jonah, man, you got to wake up. We need every God accounted for. Wake up and pray to your God. By the time we get to verse 7, they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. Now, here's what they have to do. We have no idea whose fault this is, but this storm is so violent. This sea is raging and this wind is so wild. This has to be a divine storm. We have to cast lots, and we will wait on whichever God we have prayed to to clarify who the individual is that is at fault, and they cast lots. They drew straws, as it were, and the lot falls upon Jonah. At this point in time, to everyone there, there is no longer any confusion. This raging storm is Jonah's fault. And here's what we read in verse 8. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? And what is thy country? And of what people art thou? Now, it seems strange to me that in the midst of this wild and violent storm, when the lot has fallen upon Jonah, that they look to him and say, in effect, what in the world did you do to your God? And by the way, what do you do for a living? What is your occupation? Where are you from? Tell us about your home people. They are doing investigative work. Whatever they are unearthing, they never want to replicate again. This storm is that kind of violent. What do you do now? Jonah's going to answer, and I am struck by how he answers. Here's what we read in verse 9. And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Did he say in there, and I am a prophet of God? Nope. They asked him, what do you do? He is a prophet of God. He's so distanced from God at this point that his reactions aren't even spiritual. 
When everybody else is praying to a useless God, he who could have interceded with the God of creation is silent. When he is confronted in this moment and asked, what do you do? He refuses to tell them, I am a prophet of God, because at this point in time, he is not. He's resigned from that post. But let's dig further and listen to his answer. He says, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Now, he's telling them something that apparently he doesn't believe. Because he has just said, I serve the God of the sea. Well, you should be praying then, man, because the sea is what's going to kill us. I serve the God of the dry land. Well, that's where we all want to be right now. Could you please pray to your God? Could you please intercede? And what's just been revealed is the utter joke that Jonah is. The complete hypocrisy has just been exposed. He said, I fear the Lord. Well, clearly you don't, because if you feared the Lord, you would have gone to Nineveh. He then says, I serve the true God, the creator God of the sea and of the dry land. Well, clearly you don't, because if you did, you would have prayed and interceded on our behalf. Ultimately, what they're saying is, Jonah, practically you're an atheist. You might say you believe with your mouth, but none of your actions back up what you're saying. You don't fear the Lord or you would have obeyed. And you don't believe that he's the God of the sea and dry land or else you would be praying. Jonah, you're a hypocrite. Jonah, at this point in time, is as far from God as can possibly be. Working to get geographically as far from his assignment as he can possibly get. With all of his hypocrisy now evident in verse 12, he says unto them, take me up. And cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Jonah now admits, this storm is my fault. Cast me overboard and the storm will cease. I fully believe that Jonah imagines this is the end of his story. When he says, throw me overboard, he's not looking at that water and thinking, and I'll just swim to land. He's not looking at the water and thinking, it will all calm down and I'll get back on board the boat. As far as he is concerned, it's him or everybody. I don't think this is really a heroic step. I think this is ultimate defeat. Cast me overboard and the sea will be calm and the sailors do everything they can. They put their backs into it. They row against the wind, against the waves. They push and push until they realize there's no winning. So in verse 15, they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Isn't it striking that revival breaks out on the deck of the ship when the prophet of God is gone? That's how terrible his testimony was. That's how vapid his spirituality was. That's how clear his hypocrisy was. And in verse 17, we enter back into the unfolding story of grace and mercy. We have the word now. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, We are in the midst, we have jumped into an unfolding story of grace and mercy. Verse 3, But Jonah takes contradictory steps against God's mandate. Verse 4, But God takes contradictory steps against Jonah's disobedience, and a storm arrives on the sea. Now, back to the unfolding story of grace and mercy, God has prepared a great fish that is going to swallow Jonah whole. How in the world is being swallowed by a great fish equal to the mercy of God? Because without the great fish, Jonah would be dead. How many of you, when you get to this point in the Bible story, imagine Pinocchio in the belly of the whale, right? Lighting candles, conversant, talking. It was not like that at all. In fact, in his prayer, Jonah is going to use language which communicates to us what it was like in the belly of the fish. He describes it as the belly of hell. You know what I'm talking about? I'm here in the belly of hell. That doesn't sound like a place you want to go, does it? The belly of hell. No. He talks about the bars pressing in on him, the rib cage, the bones of this fish are on him, seaweed wrapped around his head. I happen to believe that the Bible is telling us that for three days and three nights, and I'm not trying to be crass, but the digestive juices of the fish are going to work on what the fish has eaten. And Jonah is in great discomfort. Skin's becoming a little bleached, hair's coming out, clothes are wearing down, Jonah's in there. And if you are claustrophobic like I am, it just can't be worse. The smell is probably not pleasant. Do you know what fish eat? Have you ever smelled fish? As the least inviting scent in the world. Hey, I made fish for dinner. Mmm. Think I'll go out. It smells disgusting. Now go in the fish. That's where Jonah is inside of the fish. How in the world is that indicative of God's mercy? Without it, Jonah's dead. And by the time we jump into verse 1 of chapter 2, here's what we read. Then. Now, I'm not trying to give you an English lesson, but I want you to see this. Now, unfolding story of grace and mercy. But Jonah ran. Contradictory action against the mandate of God. But God threw a windstorm down on the sea. God takes contradictory action against Jonah. Jonah's cast in. Now, God has prepared a fish. Back to the unfolding story of grace and mercy. Then, so now Jonah, that's a different word. That's not contradictory. That is, now we're unfolding the story. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. At last, Jonah is acting in accordance with the work of God. It's hard to imagine that this belly of the fish experience is indicative of God's mercy, but it is. And here's the good news. The good news is that while Jonah wants to forget about God, God has not forgotten about Jonah. The good news is Jonah has given up on God, but God has not given up on Jonah. The good news is that God loves us even when we run the wrong direction. And Jonah admits that he's dealing with the punishment of God for his disobedience. Do you realize that sometimes hardship comes into our lives and it is a vehicle of the mercy of God? Rarely do we see it like that. But in verse 2 of chapter 2, we'll listen as he prays, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me, out of the belly of hell cried I, 
and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. One author on that verse wrote, God's goal in affliction is to awaken us. Sometimes God has to shake us to wake us. Physically and figuratively, this storm and this fish were sent to wake Jonah up. Up to this point, everything about the life of Jonah has been in direct opposition to the authority of God. And now we will see him turn back. In verse 4, here's what he says. I am cast out of thy sight yet. I will look again toward thy holy temple. You say, well, that's just Old Testament talk. Jonah's in the belly of the whale and he is praying. Maybe out loud, maybe not. Because if you open your mouth, just think of what rushes in. It's gross. So he's probably praying with his lips closed. I would have been. Wouldn't have opened my eyes either. This is where I go when I study. I just need you to know. I live there in the moment. Can't open my mouth in here to pray. So I'm just, prayers up here. And he says, I will look towards your holy temple again. Isn't that a strange phrase? But indicated in the language is Jonah is capitulating to the discipline of God. He is making a return to obedience and adherence to the word of God. And he is he's communicating that he's trusting in the promises of God. What do I mean? When the temple was built, a prayer of dedication was prayed at the temple. God agreed with the prayer that was prayed at the dedication of the temple. And here is what was prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man. Okay, so whatever prayer, whoever is praying this prayer and supplication be made by any man or by all the people of Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house. So whenever somebody comes to an end of themselves... And they turn back to this temple in their heart and even geographically and they pray this to this place. That's what we saw Daniel do, right? He would open the windows and he would pray toward Jerusalem. He's, he's just obeying what God said. Here's, what, here's the prayer of dedication. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways whose heart thou knowest. Whenever somebody stops and capitulates in their heart and prays and returns to obedience to your word, hear them and forgive them. That's the prayer of dedication. So when we know when Jonah in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the fish, says, yet will I now look again towards your holy temple, we are watching him capitulate, repent. We are seeing humility. We are seeing him turn. We have those verses in the New Testament. When we read in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not faithful, but he is. And if we will confess and we will repent, he will forgive us. In verse 9, Jonah says something interesting. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. See, that is the whole reason this was able to be preached today. It made it in. One word, but it's there. I will pay... That that I have vowed, salvation is of the Lord. What can Jonah sacrifice? He can't offer up an animal. There's no room to move around. He's in an animal. He can't offer it up. What can he offer up? The same thing we can offer up. A heart of repentance and a voice of thanksgiving. And in verse 10, we have that famous moment. And the Lord spake unto the fish, which again, creator God can do. And it vomited Jonah 
out upon the dry land. Now, again, I can't help it. He said when he told the mariners, I serve the God of the sea and the dry land. He's vomited back out on the dry land. It's, he's, he's back. Now, we have to stop for just a moment here, and we have to consider this scene. We can't pass over it with familiarity and just see it as an old Bible story. Live in it in a moment. Here's Jonah standing on the shore of the dry land. Does he look good? No. I, I sincerely think he's a little bleached out and blistered up. I don't think his hair looks great. I don't think his apparel looks great. And in fact, we know that he is covered in the juices and the vomit of a fish. He's standing there. That's what we are looking at. Is there anything about Jonah right now that you think? Now, I'll tell you what. If ever I saw a servant of God, there's one right there. I'll tell you what. If ever we needed to pick a prophet to go deliver a message to Nineveh, we found our guy. He's really put together. No. He's covered in fish puke with his clothes wearing away, and he looks like a complete wreck. And when everybody else would say, you're out, notice what chapter 3 in verse 1 tells us. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Jonah, there was nothing about you that told me you were going to succeed at this to begin with. And what I see now, you standing on the seashore, covered in fish puke with your clothes worn away, soaked with your head down, I actually see you as more usable now than I did before. Because I see you now with a humbled heart. I see you now in a penitent condition. And so I come to you the second time. Is that not amazing mercy and grace that God is giving Jonah a second tide a second chance. Listen, no matter how long we stay silent, God will hear us when we're ready to talk. And we discover in these moments of reviving grace that maybe we have run away in sinful rebellion, but imagine it, God has gone along that way too. In verse 3, Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, I don't think this is rocket science to you. Jonah knows at this point, I got no choice. I have to go to Nineveh. If I don't go to Nineveh, I mean, if the last three days is no indication of what God, then I'm the biggest idiot on earth. He's going to Nineveh. He is seizing his second chance. One author said this, and I love it. If we were to say, go home now, Jonah. I'm glad you repented of your disobedience, but you are no longer useful to me. We would be just and reasonable in doing so. Does God always do that? Does God stoop to use those who have rejected His commission? Will He use those who have turned a deaf ear to His word, who have pursued a course of determined disobedience? Yes, He does. And if He did not, none of us could serve Him. None of us. Some people get to a season of life like this where everything's supposed to be postcard perfect, everything's supposed to be five stars, everything's supposed to be wonderful, and they realize, I am an absolute wreck. I have failed, I have rebelled, I have lived stubborn, I have walked the other direction, I have disobeyed God's word. And we have too often shown people, then you better live ready for God to punch you square in the face and stamp you out. And what we need to remind them is this, even though you've been silent, if you will speak, God's ready to listen. 
And even if you're standing there covered in fish guts and you smell and no one wants to get near you, I am telling you that God, who is the great redeemer and the restorer of souls, can bring you back. And even those who think they have no use and they have no opportunity that will ever come their way again, you've been confronted with another one here and now. God will give you a second chance. I found it interesting that as I studied this on Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, it's the most solemn day on the Jewish calendar, they read the book of Jonah in the synagogues, in the temple. Worshippers are, of course, fasting, they're confessing their sin, they're reflecting on the words of Isaiah, and they'll listen to the account of Jonah. And I thought, why? Of all the readings, one wrote, that could have been chosen for the highest holy day of the year, someone started the tradition of reading Jonah. Why do Jewish people read about the reluctant prophet who ran from God, was caught by a fish, and miraculously released to complete a dangerous mission? And then he went on and said this, because the story of Jonah is more about repentance than it is about the fish. The book reminds us more about God's infinite mercy and grace than it does about a guy who ran the wrong direction. We call it Jonah, and probably we should call it Father God is gracious and merciful. I love to come to this story and be able to say to people whose marriages struggle and who feel like they've been bad parents and who look back at their life and see woe at times and seasons of loss, failure, and missed opportunities. Your story is not completely written yet. God is a God of infinite mercy and grace. And even if you've taken contradictory action against him and he has stepped in against you, his mercy and grace are always available. I wish the story of Jonah ended as happy as I wanted it to. But it actually ends with a question that goes unanswered. It starts like we're jumping into the middle of a story. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, get yourself to Nineveh. No, I'm not going to Nineveh. Well, then I'm going to throw a storm, and you're in a fish, and now you're right. And it ends with a question. Jonah is sitting there, and he's not happy that God has been merciful to Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites. Why would he want God to be merciful? What he wants is for God to finally show the people of Nineveh that they're wrong. He wants God to rain down fire and brimstone on Nineveh and burn them up, but he gives them grace. And he sits there with his arms crossed and he's pouting. And God looks at him and says, shouldn't I spare Nineveh? They turn to me with a penitent heart. Shouldn't I spare Nineveh? And the whole thing wraps up by just saying, if God can forgive Jonah who ran the wrong direction, and God can forgive Nineveh, I mean of all places, Nineveh, that bloody city, Don't you think, don't you realize that he can also forgive you? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.